You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right. Well, good morning, church family. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, good. It is really, really good to see you guys this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and as always, it's my joy and privilege to get to uh, be in God's Word with you today as we seek to hear more from Him, learn more of who He is, uh, and how that radically shapes everything for who we are as well. So uh, if you're new around here, there are a few like catchphrases that we often use to narrate sort of who we are, what we do, and what we're ultimately about as a church family. Uh, one that we've been using for the past few years uh, has been this idea of following Jesus together, uh, that we think that uh, spiritual formation, that uh, as a community, our aim is to be with and become like Jesus, our Savior. That is what we're pushing forward at, uh, towards as a church. Another one that kind of goes along with this that you've, if you've been around any amount of time, you've heard us say, uh, is that the things you do, do things to you. All right. Thank you. At least you're making me not feel too crazy up here. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. And both of these, we kind of look at them as though they work in conjunction with each other. That uh, essentially we believe that when it comes to spiritual formation or discipleship to Jesus, whichever term you want to use, uh, we look at that as though it's a community project. It's something that we are all in on together and that the things that we choose to do, our habits, our patterns of life, and everything in between, they play a significant role role in that formation, that the things we do actually affect on some level how we become like Jesus and be with Jesus on some level. And so uh, we place a large value on that here. It's part of why we created what we call our covenant practices. Uh, And the covenant practices are essentially a way of life that our missionary members have committed to together uh, that we believe the Holy Spirit uses to shape us and make us more like Jesus. Things like meditating on scripture and prayer, confession and repentance, giving and gathering. Uh, Now, for the fear of sounding a bit too dramatic, all right, which I'm prone to drama as it is, uh, I believe that our world has changed significantly over the past year and a half. Uh, I think most people would probably agree with me in that assessment as well. Like in general, in our culture now, in light of COVID, people's perceptions and perspectives have just changed on a large scale when it comes to the sorts of things that they will or will not do with their life. So uh, for example, do I go to the movies or do I just stream this new release at home? Should I work remotely? Or should I go to the office? Should I travel for vacation? Or should I use that money and buy a Peloton, right? Uh, One of the questions that, at least from my seat on the bus, that it seems like a vast majority of people, especially Christians, are asking are, what should I do with my Sunday mornings? What do I do with my Sunday mornings? So in a nationwide study on the impact of church attendance over the last year and a half, on average, church attendance has dropped somewhere near 60%. In another study, 34% of church attenders said that they've church church hopped, whether digitally or physically, in the past year and a half. And another 32% said that they have just stopped attending anything altogether. Now, that number is wild to think about. I mean, maybe this is just me as a pastor, but to think, 32%, that is one in three 
people who used to attend church are no longer doing anything church-related with their Sunday morning, virtual or otherwise. Now, I hear those stats and I think a couple of things. For one, I kind of freak out a little bit as a pastor because I go, oh my gosh, this cannot be spiritually healthy for any of us, right? Uh, For two, I start thinking, man, and I don't even think this is the beginning of it. Like, I don't even know if we have scratched the surface on all the ways that the pandemic and everything associated with it has really affected our culture. And I think over the next year to two years, we're going to see even more of these impacts. Uh, But also, as I've been thinking about it, I think one of the big reasons for this significant decline is because many Christians don't fully understand why we do what we do on Sundays to begin with. We don't understand why this is so important and why it's so integral for our discipleship to Jesus. And so as we close out the summer, honestly, we thought we'd take a few weeks to just unpack some of the things about our practice of gathering that is not that aren't always explained or always unpacked for us. Now, for what it's worth, I do want to just kind of say this up front. Uh, we planned this series before the CDC dropped their latest info at the end of this past week. So I recognize that the potential of a series on gathering in the midst of a new variant spreading could feel a little tone deaf, all right? Like I, I fully understand that and I'm just kind of leaning into the curve a little bit or some of the irony there, therein. But I'm gonna tell you why I don't actually think that's the case, all right? And here's the reason. Uh, I don't truthfully know what is ahead for our community. I don't. I don't know what lies ahead for our society. We may be looking at more shutdowns and more mask mandates. Uh, we may be looking at life getting back to normal. I, I don't know what the future holds, but Either way, on the other end of this, I don't want for any of us to become one of these statistics. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't want any of us to become one of these statistics. I want us to understand the why so that whatever happens, you have a value system in place to creatively prioritize these things, no matter how they may look in the future, no matter what form or shape they may take. I want you to be able to value the gift that God has given us through the practice of gathering. So uh, today, all I really want to do uh, is I want to answer the questions, why do we gather and why does it matter? Why do we gather and why does it matter? So if you're anything like me, especially if you grew up in the church like I did, that might be a question that you've never even thought to ask, right? Like that might be something that you have just assumed is the norm. Like you go, um, gather that... That's just what we do. That's just what we've always done, which just to be honest, not to step on your toes, I don't think that's a very good answer, okay? Because when we have that, when that's the case, uh, and none of us have been doing it for a year, it's no wonder that 30% of us would just stop doing it altogether because why were we even really doing it in the first place? Now, maybe there are others of us who would say, well, no, I know why we gather. We gather because we worship. We gather to worship. And to that, I would say that's a great answer. That is a super great answer. And 100%, a part of what we do when we gather together is worship Jesus collectively together. It's a big part of what we do. But what if it's more than that? What if it's actually more than that? What if God is doing something with our gathering together that goes above and beyond those things? I would submit to you 
that it is more than that. And that's what I hope to help us uh, see today. So in an effort to help us avoid just going through the motions, I want to help us embrace that today. So uh, we're going to be jumping around a good bit this morning, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there or open up your phone and flip there, that would be great. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Uh, And as you're pulling it up, I'll give you a little bit of context to get us going. So uh, at this point, we are a few years into Jesus's ministry at this point in Matthew. He's been performing miracles, teaching on the kingdom of heaven, and everyone's thinking, okay, who is this guy? We see this guy doing all these miracles. He's teaching with authority. He's telling us about who God is and what God wants for us. Who exactly is this guy? And in verse 13, we pick up into a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And he knows that people are talking about him. And so in verse 13, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And his disciples respond with, some are saying that you're John the Baptist, some are saying you're Elijah, others are saying that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Basically, everyone knows that you are some kind of prophet, and they're just trying to figure out which one are you. And Jesus responds, okay, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, in what is probably his best moment as a disciple, just sort of blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a very, very big moment for Peter for what it's worth. And it's followed by a very, very bad moment for Peter that we're not going to get into. But what I I want to draw your attention to is how Jesus responds. Let's look at verse 17. This is how it reads. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, which is actually a word in the original language that sounds like rock. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the reason I start us out here is because this is the first time in the New Testament where we actually see the word church mentioned. It's the first time that the word is used and is used by Jesus. And it actually communicates some pretty important things about who the church is and what our identity is. And so first, there's the word itself, okay? In the Greek, the word is ekklesia, and it means assembly or gathering or most literally called out ones. So for the record, this is actually why we call what we do on Sundays the gathering. It's not to sound weird or cultish or anything like that, but it's a carryover of this idea that gathered is who we are. And so Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus says, on this truth, I will build my called out ones, my gathering, my assembly. Now, obviously, there are a lot of ways that we do this in our church family, and there are other things that we see in Scripture that also make the church the church, family relationships being another big one that we harp on over and over again. It's not just that we are a group of people who meet together in various places, but we are a group of people whose lives are interwoven as a family together through Christ. But a part of being family is being together. A part of being family is gathering. Now, secondly, what we see is it's a gathering that's built on something. It's built on Peter's confession that you are the Christ. Now, to be clear, I don't know what your background is, but Christ is not Jesus's last name, okay? I know we often hear Jesus Christ put together, but it's not actually Jesus's last name. Christ is a title, and it's a very loaded title at that. 
So in the Greek, Christ is the translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. And the Messiah or the Christ in the Judaism of Jesus' day was the long-awaited king of God's kingdom, Israel. Christ was the one who was promised to come, who would one day restore all things as they were meant to be. The one who would come and make all things new, bringing with him the forgiveness of sins, making right that everything sin has made wrong, establishing a kingdom of peace and justice and generosity and compassion that would last forever. A kingdom where the powerful would serve the weak, a kingdom where the rich would give to the poor, where the lonely would be brought into families, where the sick are healed and the oppressed are set free, where those who are brokenhearted or bound by sin and addiction are made whole, where weapons of war are turned into farm tools, where the great enemies of God's people, Satan, sin, and death are forever defeated, and most importantly, where God himself will dwell personally and intimately with his people forever and satisfying the every longing of the human heart forever. So obviously, this is a very loaded word and a very loaded claim for Peter to make. And it is the very thing that the church itself is built on. Now, keep all of that in mind, all right? Keep all of that in mind. And let me take you to a text that connects some of the dots on what that has to do regarding what we do on Sundays. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10. We're gonna pick up in verse 19. This is what the author of Hebrews writes. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. All right, let's pause here for just a second because there's a lot happening in these verses, all right? And I'm not going to spend time unpacking all of it, but this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's essentially reiterating the claims of Peter. In the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites, were served by priests, and priests were essentially these mediators or go-betweens between God and men. And the priest would go to the temple and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So to help us connect the dots here, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that in this radical twist, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited king of God's people, is also their great high priest and the true and perfect sacrifice for their sin. His exaltation, his power made manifest, is not in a throne or in a palace, but on a cross. That somehow on the cross, Jesus drew all uh, all of sin and death and demonic oppression of the world onto his own shoulders, dying in love for the very people who rebel against his reign, you and me, right? And somehow that act broke the grip of Satan, sin, and death. And on the cross, Jesus was not only crowned king of the world, but opened the doors wide for you and I to enter that kingdom and the very presence of God itself as well. And if you're a Christian, this is what I try to tell you all the time, but this is the truest true thing about you. This reality is the truest true thing about you. By grace, You are a citizen of the kingdom and loved by the king. What Christ has done for you is your truest reality. Because of Jesus, you and I can now have confidence to enter into the presence of God because of what the Christ did for us on the cross. Your record of guilt 
your shame, the things you've done, the things you've had done to you, your latest failure, your latest foolishness, whatever it may be, none of that prohibits you from relationship with the God who made you. None of that prohibits you from his love and acceptance and mercy for you any longer, period, game over, end of discussion. What the author is doing here is he is reminding his audience of the very same thing that Jesus said to his disciples, that this is the rock that the church is built on. My work for you is what binds you together. And as we're fond of saying, that absolutely changes everything. It changes everything. Look at verse 22. Therefore, since Jesus has done all of this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's saying, therefore, since Jesus has done this, since this is the reality we have in Jesus, let's embrace it. Let's embrace it. Let's actually draw near to God with the confidence that Jesus has given to us, with full assurance, as the author writes. Let's live fully and confidently in this new reality that Jesus has bought for us with his body and his blood. The point being that as believers, we now get to embody this great new reality that part of what we get to do as followers of Jesus is embody this incredible truth of what Jesus has done for us, that through the Spirit, we not only get to embrace the truth of Jesus, but the way and the kingdom of Jesus as well. We get to inhabit, so to speak, this new reality, or as the writers of the New Testament talk about it, this new life, free from sin, free from shame and condemnation, a life filled with the things of the spirit and of God's kingdom. And we've said this in various ways in the past, but the truth is, is that we are all wired, each and every one of us, we are all wired to live our lives according to what we believe to be the truest true thing about us. So for example, a kid that is never told that they are loved by their parents often grows up to be someone who struggles to feel like they're even worthy of love from anyone. We see this story all the time. Someone who grew up having a hard time making friends tends to believe that they're not worthy of acceptance and that others just kind of tolerate them being around but don't really care for them or want them in their life. I heard recently about a woman who'd grown up in a very legalistic church culture where it's the type of place that said, you have to do this in order for God to love you. And even years and years later, removed from that church, she still talks about herself only as a broken and busted up thing, not recognizing the healing and grace that God has provided for her in Jesus. That's the story or the unreality that she is living into. And those unrealities shape us. They do. The stories we tell ourselves affect us. They affect the things that we think. They affect, they affect how we think about ourselves, what we think is most important in the world, what's valuable and worth chasing, how we think about others in the world around us. What we say about ourselves shapes who we become and what we do, which is why the writer of Hebrews encourages us to hold fast our confession of hope, to hold fast to God's reality, to hold fast to what God declares to be true of you because that affects everything about how we live and operate in this life. And it's why he goes on to say what he says next, verse 24. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now notice, after all of, this, all of these ginormous claims about our new reality, the author pivots. In verse 24, he essentially says, let us consider how to stir each other up, essentially to live in light of this truth. And then in verse 25, not neglecting meeting together, not neglecting being with one another, not neglecting gathering with each other. The first thing he gives for helping each other embody this new reality is to gather together. And I know some of you are like, man, all of this sounds great, but how on earth does this actually connect the gatherings? And I appreciate you staying with me because this is how. We learn to embody this new reality together. We learn to embody this new reality that Jesus has purchased for us alongside one another. That something happens, all right? Something happens when the stuff you know in your head is actually practiced and lived out with other people. It reinforces it, right? It puts skin on it in a lot of ways. So I was put onto a book recently about biblical epistemology, which I know that's a really big word, but basically it's answering the questions, how do you really learn or how do you really know what you know, right? Like how do you really learn something deep down into you? And the author said the primary way that people in scriptures learned anything was through the process of ritual, corporate practices, that it wasn't just enough to learn information but it had to be ritualized to sink in. So here's, here's sort of what, what he means. Uh, over the past few years, like I've tried to get into golf uh, and I'm terrible, like more terrible than terrible. Like I don't even know how that's a thing, but that is where I'm at when it comes to golf. But what I'm learning to appreciate is that for the most part, it all really just boils down to one motion, the golf swing. It's all really about that. That's it. And now there's all these different moving parts that people have been patiently trying to coach me up on for years at this point. Uh, But at a certain point, you just swing over and over and over again until something clicks and you finally get it. That knowledge somehow through all of that practice and all of those tips finally ingrains itself into your body. And it hasn't happened for me yet, but I'm hoping that one day it will. This came up earlier this week as well for me. Like my son also just learned to ride his bike this week. Uh, And he and I had been working on it for a long, long time. Like, I mean, it had been weeks, if not months of he and I outside just rehearsing the whole thing. Me encouraging him and him practicing the motions over and over again. And then finally this week we were at the park and something just clicked. It just clicked. And it's like, he's been riding his bike for 10 years and he's only six years old. Like, it's absolutely amazing. It's like there had never been a time in his life when he didn't actually know how to ride his bike. It just finally snapped in. And that's essentially what the author is getting at here, that if you really want to know God's love for you, if you really want to know that God is there for you, if you really thoroughly want to embrace your truest identity as a cleansed and forgiven son or daughter of God, if you really want to learn to embrace the way of his kingdom, the way uh, of love and justice and grace and compassion, the way you really get that to sink deep down into you, into your body, is through rehearsing these things out with God's people together. That's how it actually gets in you. 
rehearsing these things out with other followers of Jesus. You see, gathering isn't something that we simply do because, excuse me, gathering isn't something we do simply because it's who we are, but because it does something to us. We don't just gather because it's who we are, but because it does something to us. When it comes to holding fast, we need encouragement from others face to face. When we feel shame or guilt, we need to be reminded by others of God's grace and mercy. When we need the the presence of others on this journey with Jesus alongside us to stir us up for love and good works, to essentially remind us that we aren't alone and that we inhabit a whole new reality as God's called out ones. And the writer of Hebrews says that what we do, excuse me, and the writer of Hebrews says we do that here in my opinion, the way he says it just sticks out like crazy. How do we stir each other up? How do we encourage God's story in our lives? By being together, by not neglecting being together, by gathering with God's people. And truthfully, this happens anytime that we gather together on Sundays, as well as in groups throughout the week. And I think generally speaking, Uh, generally speaking, we know this and we value it, especially when it comes to our groups. And for what it's worth, I love that about our church family, just to let you know. It is one of the things that I love the most about who we are, one of the things that I am proudest of about who we are. But we need both. We need both what we do during the week alongside each other and what we do on Sundays with each other. Both are crucial and both work together to shape and form us because there are just simply things that happen here that don't happen there. So for example, you'll notice in verse 25, it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day refers to our future destination, the one day when Jesus will return to fully and finally establish his kingdom forever, the day that Jesus will reunite body and soul of those who have died and trusted in him, the day when every tear will finally be dried up, when all pain and disease will be no more, and the day when sin and death will only be things of the past when we will be worshiping King Jesus with all of our brothers and sisters from every tribe, nation, and tongue throughout all of human history. And I point that out to help us see that when we gather, specifically when we gather on Sundays, what is actually happening is we are rehearsing our eternities together. We are rehearsing for life in the kingdom. When we gather, we embody a better way that we and the world desperately need. We embody the very things that Jesus has come to bring to us as a community. Here's some of what I mean. So in a world that says this is all there is, right? That this is it. Out with the old and in with the new. When we gather together each week, we step into something beyond us. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. But we step into something that has existed long before us and will exist long after us. Our own modern expression of this ancient tradition that followers of Jesus have been doing for the last 2,000 years from all over the globe, we are connecting to that every single Sunday that we gather together. We remind ourselves of the reality that our ultimate allegiance ultimately is not to a country, it's not to a faction, it's not even to a set of ideals. Our allegiance is to King Jesus, and his kingdom is coming. It is coming and it will last forever. And that what we do in this space with one another is a shadow or a foretaste of what is to come. 
So this is why like we make such a big deal out of welcoming each other here. Like from the moment you pull up into the parking lot when you, uh, to when you get to your seat, you are greeted by like at least a half, of, a half a dozen people. Most specifically, Miss Berta, every single Sunday when you show up. And for the record, like when was the last time that you walked into an environment where people had a big, genuine smile on their face simply because they were glad to see you and not because they had something that they wanted to sell you? When was the last time other than here, that you were ever in an environment like that. Some folks say we're too friendly, but man, that is some criticism that I will absolutely take because in a world that constantly exploits and manipulates and dehumanizes people, where it always feels like someone wants something from you or to buy something from you or to take something from you, where everyone has their own agenda, when we gather together each week, you are welcomed by the family of God who is just excited to see you with no hidden agendas, no selfish motive underneath. Glad to see you because you are a person like them who is loved by God. And isn't that refreshing? Like, isn't that just what our souls need in this cultural moment? As overblown as this might sound to you, like, do you know that this is what you participate in when we pass the peace each and every Sunday? Like, believe it or not, it's not just a time where we try to make introverts feel uncomfortable. That's not, that's not actually what we're trying to do with that time. It's a time where we restore each other's humanity. That's what's actually going on in those two to five minutes that feel just so routine and normal to you. We are restoring each other's humanity, where we are embodying the spirit of love and inclusion found in God's kingdom that calls men and women of every tribe, nation, and tongue, no matter who they are, where they're from, or what they've done, its citizens. It's an absolutely beautiful and meaningful time. That's what's actually going on. This is in part why we sing when we're together. In a world of clickbait and doomsday headlines where it feels like everyone is divided and things are worse than they have ever been ever before, we refuse the unreality that says that we must live as angry, polarized, and scared human beings. We refuse the unreality that says God is not in control. We, when we sing, we get to embody that Christ is the one who holds all things together that he is the one who stands over this world and our lives, and he's got it. He is the one who holds all things in his hands, including you and me, that he is God and we are not, and he is actually the glue that unites us over and above everything else. Jesus is the one who unites us in a world that tells us that we can't get along, depending on our political opinions or whatever. Jesus is the glue that holds us together. Above all, everything else, we have that in common. And the truth is, is that something happens to you. When you sing, when you engage in singing with your body, something actually happens to you. When you actually use your vocal cords with the other people around you, even if you don't feel it, even if you're not into it in the moment, even if you feel embarrassed or like you're singing off key, you're in good company, so I don't know why we're worried about that. Something is happening to you in those moments. You're telling yourself, this is the truest reality. This is what is true of me, or at least what I want to be true of me. And this is what is true of us. And most importantly, this is what is true of God. So Jesus, help this truth to sink down into me. Because right now, I'm scared.
or I'm burnout or I'm hurt. And I feel like I'm not one with these folks or I feel like I can't be one with these folks, but I will sing until my throat is sore, until this reality finds its, finds its way all the way down into my soul. This is why we hear God's word together. And we're gonna talk, talk more about this one next week, but in a world of distraction and endless entertainment and the lies of live your own truth or whatever it is, our presence communicates that God is worthy of our attention. When we open up this word together and we listen to it and receive it, we are saying God is worthy of our attention, that he is worth putting the phone down for. And he, and he alone, is the source of life, joy, wisdom, and peace that we're all actually looking for. And that those things aren't gonna be found in searching deeper within ourselves or scrolling an Instagram feed, but drinking deeply from what he has said to us. This is why we serve when we're together. In a world of consumerism, where life, we're told, is meant to revolve all around me, and the dominant question we're told to ask at every moment is, what do you want to do to make your life better? When we physically show up to volunteer our time on Sundays, we are embodying the way of Jesus's kingdom, who laid down his life in service of ours. And we get to ask instead, how can I make somebody else's life better today? We're getting into our bodies the message that God's people matter and his mission matters. So I set my alarm on a weekend and wake up early to serve in Kidtown, to pour my life out into young kids who are mostly just screaming and crying because Jesus loves them. I'm willing to do it because Jesus loves them. And just like he wants me in his kingdom, he wants them in his kingdom as well. So I'm gonna love them and I'm gonna pray for them and I'm gonna repeat myself 15 million times because life is not about me. And I'm gonna volunteer my time and energy away so that parents can know that they also aren't in this alone that their parenting endeavor isn't alone, but there is a host of people here to love them and help them raise families who love Jesus as well. And there are lots of other things that I could go on about, but the point is, is that when we do this, we slowly begin to step in to all that God has for us. We slowly over time, by simply showing up, engaged and expectant, we allow the spirit to work in us and through us expecting God to show up in our midst, that we might receive his presence afresh and that, the world, that we and the world, for that matter, might catch a glimpse of the kingdom that is coming. There was a recent article in the New York Times um, called There's a Certain Kind of Joy We've Been Missing. And it's by a psychologist who talks about this idea called collective effervescence, which is also a big word, a big word. But uh, it's this feeling of happiness and joy that you feel when you are synchronized with others. It's this joy that you feel when you're synchronized with others, when you're doing something together. It's, it's the thing that lies underneath the whole CrossFit phenomenon and the burn booty boot camp or whatever it's called. Like it's, that is, that is collective effervescence. Our bodies and our mental health long for this sort of thing. Like this is why people are so drawn to those communities because our souls and our minds are drawn to that kind of connectivity. And there's a line in the article that says, 
Peak happiness lies mostly in collective activity. In other words, happiness and joy are a social project. The more people come together to do things together, the more joy is actually in store for them. The more they choose the group over themselves, the more happiness oftentimes awaits them. It's almost like we keep discovering ways to prove that God has been right the entire time. And that's something, listen, that you just cannot receive when you just simply tune into a podcast or stream online or sleep in and stay home or go for a hike or whatever it may be. Like, listen, that stuff is fine from time to time. Like, we, we have the sermon podcast and a live stream for a reason, but all of that is supplemental. We can't engage in all that God has for us as a people through those mediums alone. It's not the real shebang because there's something wired deep within you that God created for you to long for the sort of collective activity with each other. My kids are at an age where they still love showing up on Sundays, which I just absolutely adore because I know when they hit their teens, that may not always be the case. Uh, but they always come in now with, right now at least, with big smiles on their faces and they love seeing their friends and they're doing like full on sprint hugs, head first into their friends, most of the time without them even seeing that it's coming, you know? Uh, and even though they don't have language for it, what's happening is they're excited because they know, man, we're gonna get to do something together and we're gonna get to see people that our lives are connected to. We're gonna see brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles in the family of God and they just can't wait to be here. They absolutely love it. And I'm not saying that the application for all of us here is that we start full sprint hugging into people unexpectedly or anything like that. Though maybe for some of you, that does need to be your application. So I'll just, I'll put that out there for you. But what I am saying is perhaps like them, we need to start seeing the actual beauty of what God has given us here. That we need to start seeing the actual beauty of what this time and this space affords to us. Sometimes, um, well, how do I want to say this? Uh, I think we may need to realize that God's presence is manifested to us in this little family reunion we get to have each and every week where we are side by side with brothers and sisters who, in fact, we are going to spend eternity with forever in Jesus's kingdom. Sometimes I love to stop singing for a minute uh, when we're in here singing our praise to Jesus. I love to stop singing from time to time just to be enveloped by all of your voices that are singing. Honestly, it's one of the best things for my soul to actually hear. Um, it's one of the best things for me. Uh, and the truth is, is that heaven is gonna be like that, but oh, so much better. And we are all together with our brothers and sisters throughout the generations, celebrating who this Jesus is for us. But in the meantime, the more we do this together, the more Jesus is actually preparing us for that day. And the more we embrace this reality, the more rehearsed we actually become for the kingdom that is coming. The more we embody this better way, the more ready we are for the life that is to come. And that's what I want for us. I pray that we don't waste these moments that we have because God has something oh so special for us when we gather together.